Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you that we know we're going to go through storms in this life. We thank you, Lord, that you're a faithful God. And we thank you, Lord, in the midst of the storm that you have the ability either to remove it or to comfort us through it. And Lord, as we go to your word and we look at the example of a church that was in the midst of a very heavy storm, I pray that we would learn from their example. And Lord, that just as they did, Lord, that we would learn to trust in you no matter what's going on around us. That our faith and our hope would not be in our circumstances, but in our Savior. We love you and we praise you and we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning in a mighty and a powerful way that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, continuing our study. Um, That's a song that God has used to comfort me greatly over the last eight months. And it is a really appropriate for the text we're going to look at this morning as we look at the persecuted church, the church at Smyrna. We're going to pick up in verse 8. But a way of review, fairly quick review, remember that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we go through this book, we are getting to know Jesus better. Chapter 1, the outline, things things which were, things which are, and things which are to come. Things which were is chapter 1. We see the revealing of Jesus Christ in his glorified state in heaven. Uh, Just by way, again, remember when when John got got taken up into heaven, got to see Jesus as he was in heaven. And when he saw him, even though he had traveled with him for three years, when he saw him in his glorified body, he fell over like a dead man. And remember that, you know, that same Jesus with the glorified body and the fiery eyes and the head and hair as white as snow and the chest with a golden band and again, his eyes like the flame of fire and his feet like fine brass and his voice like the sound of many waters holding the seven stars in his right hand and the sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth and his countenance like the sun shining in its strength. That's the same Jesus who is speaking to the seven churches. And I can think of no more applicable text in all of Scripture than chapters 2 and 3 because Jesus is addressing the church. He addresses seven churches specifically, and each one of them uh, has a different area where they are struggling or an area where they need to be encouraged. And in each case, they're laid out the same way. The Lord speaks to them, introducing the letter, who it's going to. Then he shares a part of his character. And it's usually, in every case, it's a part of his character that they need to be encouraged with or reminded of because of the current trial they're going through. He then, in most cases, gives them a word of encouragement of the things they're doing well, but then he follows that up with an exhortation where they need some correction. Now, this morning, interestingly enough, this is one of the two of the seven churches that does not receive an exhortation from the Lord where they're doing poorly. He's encouraging them. This is the church that's going through the greatest amount of trial of all of them, and he's going to encourage them. So if you're here this morning and you're going through a difficult time, be encouraged. Our God is faithful, amen? amen. And he loves you. Now last week, just for those who weren't here, uh, and grab the, grab the CD, they're free, they're in the back. He talked to the church at Ephesus. And if you remember that, the church at Ephesus was faithful in many ways. They were a church that was busy doing the Lord's work. They were laboring unto exhaustion. They would not bear or stand for those who were evil. They tested all teaching against the word of God. They called out the false teachers. They persevered in the face of great persecution. They labored for the name of the Lord and they did not grow weary in well-doing. Boy, that sounds like a great church. But then Jesus said this, nevertheless, I have this against you that you have forgotten your first or left your first love. You know what? We can be really busy for God. But God is not looking for us to be busy for him, but in love with him. And if we're in love with him, we may be busy for him. But that's the fruit of our love for him. Guys, God is not impressed with how hard you work for him. He's much more concerned with having an intimate relationship with you. You know, we can get so busy doing other stuff that it won't spend time in his presence. And that's exactly what happened. As we saw, they had left their first love. They didn't lose it, they left it. And, And all of us this morning... We can fall into that trap where we're so busy doing other things that we stop taking time for the Lord. And then he encourages them them at the end that, you know, it's not too late to get back in love with him, to make him the priority yet again. And he reminded them, remember how you started. Remember what it was like when you first fell in love with him. Go back to being in the word and being in prayer and being in fellowship and doing the first works that you did in the beginning. 
That brings us this morning to the second church. And boy, this is a radically different letter to a radically different group of people who are going through a lot different circumstances. And I, I believe this is good for us as the church because while it's seven churches, it also speaks to the, us as individuals and all of our lives are in different places. There are some of you here this morning that you would honestly say, I'm doing great and I couldn't be doing any better. My finances are great. My health is great. My children are great. My job is great. And God bless both of you, you know, <laughs> or whoever you are. Because the reality is that as Christians... As Christians, it's pretty rare that everything is great. Is that true or not? Why? Because we live in a fallen world. Because we know that we're going to go through trials and temptations. It says in James, count it all joy, my brethren, when, not if, when you fall into various trials. And praise God if you're in that circumstance where everything is wonderful for you right now. I mean, that's a blessing. And you should praise God for it. But the reality is, if you live any length of time on this planet, it's probably not going to be that way all the time. And this, this text this morning should be encouragement to all of us that when we go through trials and we go through the storms of life, that we're not alone, that we have a God who is faithful, a God who cares. And I want to say this, and we'll see it. He doesn't always calm the storm. Sometimes he allows us to go through it. He brings and allows trials to come into our life for a reason that we might grow spiritually. We could have testimony time and be here for the next 10 hours of people getting up here, no doubt, saying, I went through this trial, and here's how God did a great work in my life because of it. And praise God for them. And so that brings us to this morning's text. If you're a note taker, I titled the message, Remaining Faithful in the Midst of the Storm. And then I'm going to give you four reasons to remain faithful and, and be encouraged. Number one, because of who we serve. Guys, we can be encouraged because of who we serve. Amen? It doesn't matter what's going on around us if we remember who we serve and the greatness of our Savior. Secondly, we should be, remain faithful and be encouraged because Jesus knows. Whatever you're going through this morning, you might think nobody knows. Jesus knows. He knows and he cares. And the truth is, He's been there. He's been there. He's suffered persecution. He's been through temptations and trials. He's, he's felt poverty. He's gone through all of that. And praise God, he knows and he cares. Number three, because it's temporary. The storm that you're in right now will pass. Now, for some of us, maybe we have a health issue that won't pass till we get to heaven. But it will pass when we get to heaven. Amen. Whatever the trial we're going through, it may be a week or a month or a year or a lifetime, but guys, a lifetime is nothing compared to eternity. It's temporary. God is faithful. We need to be encouraged. And then finally, may we be faithful, remain faithful and encouraged because it's worth it. Our temporary sufferings are nothing when compared to the eternal reward that we're going to receive in heaven. So let's begin in verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2. We left off last week, remaining faithful in the midst of the storm because of who we serve, the greatness of our Savior. It says there in verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Now again, remember last week, he begins every message by addressing who it's going to, or every letter. It's being communicated by Jesus Christ to John, who's writing it down, and then we'll deliver it to that local church. So Jesus, glorified Jesus in heaven, eyes of flame of fire, getting ready to come back and, and bring his church home. He's speaking, and he delivers this message to the church. Again, angel, the word there means messenger. Some believe it means an angel who overlooks the church. I believe in a more practical way. As I said last week, I believe he's speaking of the pastor. We actually know who the pastor of the church in uh, Smyrna was at the time, a man by the name of Polycarp. Who's ever heard of him? Mighty man of God, and we'll talk about him more later in future uh, texts. But he was a man who was the pastor of the church. He was a disciple of John who was martyred in his 90s when he was, according to Christian tradition, burned to death. Now, let me tell you about Smyrna. And I think this is very important that we understand the city because when I look at texts, I always try to put myself in that position. What would it be like for me if I lived there? Being a dad, being a husband, you know, having four children, living in that city, and being a Christian. What would it be like? Well, let me tell you about Smyrna. 
It was located 35 miles north of Ephesus. It was a harbor city, just like Ephesus. It had a lot of great trade because they were on a harbor. It was a beautiful and proud city, a city of learning and culture. It was famous for its trade in wine. It had a population of about 100,000 people. And it's the only one of the seven uh, cities that still exists today. It's still there. 2,000 years later, it's called Izmir today. It's uh, right in the region of Turkey. Like Ephesus, it was a wealthy city. It was, again, incredibly beautiful. It was claimed to be the glory of all of Asia. And the reason for this city being so beautiful, it was built by Alexander the Great, who had unending funds to build it. And it was beautiful. The city of Smyrna was deeply committed to idolatry and the worship of the Roman emperor. One of the famous streets in Smyrna was called the Golden Street. And as you would walk down it, it had temples to all the different idols as you went down the street. And when you got to the end of the street, it had a massive temple to Zeus. So to Cybele or Apollo or Ascapolis to uh, Aphrodite, and then finally to Zeus. But as we come to the writing of this letter, their idol worship is starting to fall off a little bit. And you think, oh, praise God. Well, not really, because they're replacing it with worship of the Roman emperor. They're starting to worship the emperor, worship, you know, in the sense, the king. Because of their association with Rome, they were doing well. So they started to worship the emperor. I don't think I have to say it very loud in this room. We don't worship the man in charge around here, amen, or anywhere, the president. We pray for him, amen. Can you imagine worshiping the president? Well, some people do. And that's, how's that working out for you? Not too good. The reality is we don't worship man, we worship God. But they were in a city that because of their worship of the emperor, was doing really well financially. And anybody who didn't worship him caught a lot of heat. Just real quickly, 200 years earlier, earlier, Smyrna built a temple to Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome, the spiritual symbol of the Roman Empire. Once the spirit of Rome was worshipped, it wasn't much of a step to worship the dead emperors of Rome. Then it was another small step to worship the living emperors. And then to demand such worship as evidence that you were aligned with Rome was the next step. And that's where it had gotten to. In 23 AD, Smyrna won the privilege over 11 other cities to build the first temple to worship the emperor Tiberius Caesar. So they were the leaders in the Roman cult of, of emperor worship. Now, why did, how does this impact a Christian man, Christian woman, a Christian family? Well, here's what would happen. The Roman emperor Domitian was the first to demand worship and for people to call him Lord. You have to call me Lord. And the way I'm going to know that you're aligned with me once a year, you're going to travel to Rome, you're going to go in, and there you're going, you're going to have to take and burn incense and offer this as a sacrifice or an act of worship to Domitian or to whoever that current Roman emperor is. And once a year, they had to burn this pence of incense on an altar to the godhead of Caesar. And having done so, then they were given a certificate to guarantee that they had performed their religious duty. So all the Christians had to do was go up there once a year and offer this pinch of incense, call him Lord, and they could walk away and live a life free of persecution because they'd have the certificate. They could go home and worship Jesus for 365 days a year if they would just compromise for that moment. Go and offer sacrifice. But you know what? The Christians refuse to do it as well they should, amen? But understand something. I think about this as a father of four. Imagining my kids being small. If I don't do this, Literally, this is what would happen. I'd lose my job. I couldn't buy or sell. They would ransack my house. They would persecute my family. And they might even put us to death. Is that a little pressure or what? And it's one thing to be a man or a woman by yourself, but to look at your family. Recognize this is what the church of Smyrna was going through. This is a time when Christians were being fed to lions. They're under Roman authority. This was not... I mean, to, to go to the church in Smyrna, to walk into the church building in Smyrna was to literally take your life into your own hands and to recognize from this day forward, nothing's going to be the same. 
As soon as I align with Jesus, the whole world is going to be against me, at least the world that I live in here in Smyrna. So I want to give you that background to understand what these people were going through as Jesus is about to write them a letter. So they're surrounded by idolatry and the worship of the emperor Caesar and a refusal to do so would result in crushing persecution. The level of persecution in Smyrna was worse than anywhere in the Roman Empire and to be a Christian there meant for sure that you would be, Christi- you, you would be uh, persecuted. This was not a lukewarm Christian church. Nobody there was lukewarm because they were lukewarm, they wouldn't have shown up. Your commitment to Christ would cost you everything. You know, it's still true today that there are those being persecuted all over the world. We don't get it because we don't live in those places, amen? But I've been to India, and there are villages in India where if you commit to Jesus Christ, your whole family disowns you. They kick you out of the hut that you live in. Nobody will do business with you. You're persecuted from that day forward. Often you are beaten, and sometimes you're even killed. Why? Because you made a commitment to Jesus Christ. What's interesting is the word Smyrna comes from the word myrrh. Where have we heard that before? At the birth of Christ and at the death of Christ, right? One of his three gifts was myrrh. And and when Jesus was crucified, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea came and claimed his body. And they took him and they they wanted to anoint him with myrrh. Now let me tell you about myrrh. Myrrh's fragrance was released and multiplied only after it had been crushed. They would take it and crush it, and then the aroma would be incredible. You know, it's, it's not by chance that Smyrna means myrrh, because just as the fragrance of our Savior's love was released as he was crushed under the weight of our sin, the same way the Christians in Smyrna being crushed by poverty and persecution and their faithfulness pr- that to God produced a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Guys, it's more important how we look in God's eyes than how we look in man's eyes. And we're going to see here as we continue through this text, this is heavy. And this text challenges me. Every time I read it, I'm challenged to the core of my soul that, Lord, could I do this? Could I be as bold and strong as they are? And I know I only could if he helped me. Amen? And the reason they could is he helped them. 2 Corinthians 2 says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You know, guys, you and I are the fragrance of Christ to a lost and a dying world. Here in Santa Cruz, we're the fragrance of Christ. At your workplace, you're the fragrance of Christ. In your neighborhood, you're the fragrance of Christ. Can I encourage you, by the way, with those invitations? If every one of us took 10 and went to five houses on each side of us and just invited somebody, invite them to church. There's a lot of people that would love to go to church on Easter if someone would invite them. Did you know that? Let's do that, amen? I know it's a little fearful for some of us, He hung on a cross for us. We can hand out a few postcards for him, amen? Amen. Let me encourage you to do that. But be encouraged. In the midst of our greatest trials, as we are being crushed, our response in faith is not only a testimony to the world around us, but as a sweet-smelling aroma to our Savior. Now, he says in the second half of that verse, now remember, he addresses it. It's to the angel or to the pastor, in my opinion, of the church in Smyrna. Here's what I'm writing. And then he gives his attribute a part of his character, who he is, things we already saw in chapter one, but would be great encouragement to the church in Smyrna. Here's what he says. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now, Jesus speaks of his person and character, and it's not random which characteristic he picks. This church in Smyrna was being persecuted, and they were facing potential death. Do you think it would be encouraging for them to hear to look down at their children thinking that they may be martyred, their own family may be martyred, to be reminded by Jesus Christ, I am the first and the last. He has triumphed over sin and death. He's risen again. And guys, death is not the end for a Christian, it's just the beginning, amen? And so he's encouraging them with his character. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus has always existed? He's the first and the last. He's the A to the Z, and he's everything in between. He always has been. It gives you a headache. Where was he before that? He was there. Before that, he was there. What about billions of years before that? He was there. Where did he come from? He was always there. He didn't come from anywhere. He's always been. I don't get it. It gives me a headache. Why? Because I'm finite man trying to understand infinite God. Can't do it. Aren't you glad we don't serve a God we can figure out completely? 
because that would limit him. He's greater than we are. We get to heaven. Whoa, he's going to be great. Amen? He's always had, he created time. He created space. You mean there was no time and no space at some point? Yes. What, what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> but he's reminding them in the midst of this trial, look who you serve. Look who you serve. Look who the God is who watches over you. Man, I love this. He's always existed. And guys, he's going to be there to the end. The always existent, always in control, eternal one was on their side and he's on our side. Then he said, who was dead and came to life. He reminds again these persecuted Christians, they serve a risen Lord who is victorious over sin and death. Death could not hold Jesus and it cannot hold his people. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Christians die well. Death has no sting. It's got a sting for those of us who stay, but not for those of us who go. Amen? I'm looking forward to it. Jesus has been right where these persecuted Christians in Smyrna were. He had suffered beyond what they could even understand. Far worse. He had the sin of all mankind placed upon him, and he endured it out of love for them out of love for the Christians in Smyrna and out of love for the Christians in this room this morning and out of the love for the people who are yet to be Christians. But guys, having been persecuted, he also rose victorious over death and over suffering. So be encouraged, whatever you're going through, the Lord's been there, he knows, he understands, and he can help us like no one else can. It says in Hebrews, therefore in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Guys, we need to be remaining steadfast in the midst of the storm. Why? Because of who we serve. Because we have a great Savior. We have a great God. And if he's allowed it, he's allowed it for a reason. He's going to use it for his glory. And he's going to use it to make us more like his son. And it's all worth it. Amen? Point number two. Remaining faithful in the midst of the storm because Jesus knows. You're not alone. Look at verse nine. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty. I know. Who's speaking? Who's speaking? Jesus. So Jesus knows. He knows. It is easy to think in the midst of great trials and affliction that somehow God has forgotten about you. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way? Man, did God just forget about me? Look what I'm going through. Doesn't he care? Now, who do you think's telling you that? That's the enemy. You know, Satan loves to tell Christian, where's your God now? Where is he? If he loves you, why would he let you go through this? We need to be reminded this morning, he sees, he knows, he understands, and he cares far more than you will ever understand until you get to heaven. You know, he not only knows because he sees what is happening, he knows because he's been there. What were the trials they were going through? They were being persecuted. Well, who's been persecuted more than anyone? Jesus. They knew, as we're going to see, that they were impoverished. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Jesus knew poverty. He knew because not only of the persecution and the poverty, but also the tribulation, the trials. He'd, he'd been through all of it. And he could relate, and he could understand, and he saw it. And, and again, this letter's being written. Now, you've got to imagine the church in Smyrna getting a letter as they're going through all that they're going through, how excited they must have been to hear from the Lord. And no doubt many of them were hoping that this was going to be the end of the trial. Ooh, a letter from Jesus. Maybe he's finally going to squash the emperor. Maybe he's finally going to deliver us. Maybe he's going to bring the finances we need. Maybe he's going to drop off a, a truckload of food so we won't be hungry anymore. What is he going to do? And it's not going to be the answer they were looking for, but it's going to be a better answer, one that we all need to hear. Whatever you're going through this morning, Jesus knows. You're his child. He loves you, and he goes through the trial with you. And again, the song that we just heard, it speaks to the fact that the Lord doesn't only know, but he's in control that he never leaves us alone in the midst of our trials. Indeed, sometimes he calms the storm, and other times he calms his child. 
Sometimes he lets the storm go because he knows that there's something he wants to do in us and through us in the storm, so he lets it go. I'll be transparent with you. During the last eight months, while I've been really sick and spent 10, I've had 10 trips to the hospital and lost all the weight and thought I was going to die a couple times, you know, I had people who wrote me letters or told me that God was punishing me. You know, you go, oh, okay. And you take that to the Lord and, and you, you recognize, here's the reality. Our God is a God who allows us to go through trials that he might be glorified, that he might make us more like his son. Amen? Now, sin has consequences. And there are times where if I go out and cheat on my wife, I may lose my marriage, and that's a consequence of my sin. I may go out and drive 100 miles an hour and wreck my car and go to jail. You know, sin has consequences. But as you are walking with the Lord, trials are not God's way of punishing you, but God's way of growing you. And so when you go through them, don't think, well, God, doesn't, does he not care about me? Doesn't he love me anymore? Yes, he loves you and he loves you enough to allow you to go through this that you might grow. Just be encouraged. In the midst of trials, be encouraged. The Lord will either deliver you from it or comfort you while you go through it. And either way, he's going to be with you. So your works, like the Ephesian church, Jesus knew the good works they had done for his kingdom. But along with all the good works, he knew all that they had suffered. He says, I know your works, your tribulation. The word tribulation there in Greek is philipsis, and here's what it means. It's a pressure, an affliction, an anguish, a burden. It was a word used for someone who would take grapes and put them in a vat and crush them until juice came out. It was also a word in ancient times when they wanted to produce a confession out of a criminal or to torture someone. They would lay a guy on his back They would take a huge stone and put it on top of his chest, a pressure. And as he would lay there and exhale, he wouldn't be able to get any air back into his body because the rock was so hard and heavy upon him. That's the word for tribulation here. This is what Smyrna is under. They're being crushed. And the Lord knows it. I I know the pressure that you're under. The word Jesus used to describe the trials and tribulations of the believers in Smyrna is this very same heavy pressure and crushing weight. Being a Christian in Smyrna was to be under constant crushing, killing, can't catch your breath pressure. Now, if that's not enough, what else? And poverty. Now, the word for poverty here, there's several words in the Greek language you can use for poverty, for being poor. One speaks of those who have have nothing extra. You know, you have money for food, money for clothes, money for a place to live, but nothing extra. You, you can meet your basic needs. That's not the word he uses here. The word he uses here in the original language means abject poverty, absolute, absolute destitution, one who has nothing at all. So in Smyrna, while it was a very prosperous city, the Christians were destitute and they were poor, not because they were lazy. Amen. Now, if you're poor because you're lazy, you deserve to be poor. The Bible says, a man who does not work shall not eat. Amen. That was kind of weak. Amen. I mean, the reality is that if we're lazy, it's not God's fault that we don't have any food. You read through Proverbs. The second thing behind wisdom he speaks about is laziness. We're not supposed to be lazy. Why were they impoverished? Because of the stand they were making for Jesus Christ. Because they refused to take that incense and burn it to the emperor and get their certificates so they could buy and sell. Because they were standing for the Lord, they were facing tribulation and persecution, and they were extremely impoverished. Again, be the dad. Be the mom. My kids are starving. All I have to do to fix this is go burn a little incense. And yet they wouldn't do it. God bless them. Amen? Wow. When I get to heaven, I want to look for some people from Smyrna. They were poor because they stood for the Lord and refused to honor Caesar as Lord. And again, the result was they lost their jobs. The shopkeepers refused to do business with them. They were robbed. Their houses were plundered. Hebrews 10.34 tells us of the early Christians that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods, knowing that they had a better and enduring possession for themselves in heaven. Guys, it's really foolish 
to spend your entire life accumulating stuff that's all going to burn. Amen? Now, we should work and we should be faithful and it's not wrong to have stuff. It's wrong if stuff has you. Amen? But we need to be good stewards of what God's given us. It all belongs to him. But when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. And again, we don't face this persecution here, but people do. As I mentioned in India, there are those that lose everything. Now again, I love this letter because it does challenge me to my core, to do better, to live holy and uncompromisingly. These Christians in Smyrna suffered because they refused to compromise. And again, I can't imagine putting myself in their place and, and not, you know, they wouldn't budge. God bless them. You know, while we can, they wouldn't budge to feed their kids and we budge for far less. Is that true or not? I know I have. Have you compromised for far less than that? Maybe you compromise to, to get a position at work or you compromise to do something or to get something. At a, you know, and, you, and we will compromise a little bit to get something that we want. And they wouldn't compromise to feed their own children. Like I said, it just challenges me. But when Jesus looks at them, the world looks at them and sees them as impoverished, in tribulation, and poor, broke. But look what Jesus says about them. Look at the next part of the verse. I know your works, your tribulations, and your poverty, but you are rich. Guys, the way Jesus defines wealth is a lot different than the way that the world does. The world saw them as impoverished. You know what? I'll, I'll use the word. They probably saw them as a bunch of losers. You Christians are a bunch of losers. Look at you guys. You got no money. You got no nothing. You can't even feed your families. A bunch of losers you guys are. You have no, you have no jobs. Looked at them like dogs. Persecuted them. Saw them as less than human. And Jesus looks at them and says, you are rich. How Jesus defines riches is far different than the world does. Even than many Christians today. I hate to keep picking on this movement, but it's so appropriate. The Word of Faith movement says if you just have enough faith, you'll never be sick and you'll be extremely wealthy. Do we see Jesus rebuking the people in Smyrna for not having enough faith? What's the answer? If you guys just had a little more faith, you'd have some money. Is that biblical? Do we see that anywhere in the Bible? But you'll find on Christian television every single day, that is feeding the flesh, not walking in the spirit. That is not the word of God. That is the word of man. That's false teaching. What an affront to every believer in Smyrna. What an affront to every Christian who in faith suffered for the cause of Christ. You know, I guess the Apostle Paul didn't have enough faith, right? Because you have enough faith, you won't be sick. And yet he had a thorn in his flesh all of his life. Hmm. You know, it's amazing how things get cleared up when you just read the Bible. <laughs> Amen? You don't fall for this stuff. Jesus didn't rebuke them for a lack of faith. He encouraged and exhorted them to remain faithful as more suffering was about to come. This is a heavy letter. Jesus is not concerned with earthly riches, and neither should we be, but instead a heavenly reward. As they continue to stand for him, things are only going to get worse. These Christians were rich in Christ. Why? Because they're redeemed, adopted, accepted, chosen, forgiven, and they're going to heaven. Guys, you don't get richer than that. That's all found in Ephesians chapter 1, by the way. You want to see your riches in Christ? Read Ephesians chapter 1. It describes how rich we are in Christ and has nothing to do with money. Now again, I'm not saying it's wrong to have money. It's not more spiritual to be rich and it's not more spiritual to be impoverished. It has nothing to do with it, ultimately. It's as long as we understand what role money should play in our lives. That it's all his, Amen. And it's not, don't let it get in the way of your relationship with him. These Christians were rich in Christ. They were headed to heaven. True riches are those that cannot be stolen. Amen? I know there's a lot of people that had a 401k a few years ago. Had a retirement account. Not so much anymore. Things done changed, right? And if you put all your hope and your, and your faith in stuff that you can lose, that's not good. But here's the good news, guys. As Christians, we are rich and our riches can never be lost because our riches are in heaven. Remember he told the rich young ruler, go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. And with the rich young ruler, oh, that's too expensive. I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't give up the temporary for the eternal. 
I can't let go of that which is perishing and is going to burn for something that will last and outshine, outlast the sun. Why? Because the focus is on eternal. Often material riches are acquired and maintained at the expense of spiritual riches. I read this in a commentary. It said, In the glory days of the Renaissance papacy with Pope, a man walked with the Pope and marveled at the splendors and riches of the Vatican. And the Pope told him, We no longer have to say what Peter said, Silver and gold have I none. His companion said, And neither can you say, Rise up and walk. There comes a time when the riches become our security if we're not careful. And we need to make sure we keep our eyes on him. He then says, I know your works, your tribulation, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Jesus said that. Now, I want to make this very clear. This is not Jesus being anti-Semitic. Amen? As Christians, we must never be, it should never be said of us. Amen? Our Savior, a Jew. Amen? All the, first, all the apostles, Jews, who wrote down the Bible and gave it to us, for the most part, Jews. Who are all the first Christians? Jews. Amen? And God is not done with the Jews. They're still his chosen people and he still has a plan for them. That being said, there were those claiming to be Jews, those who claimed to be followers of the true and living God who were blaspheming. So it's not enough that they were going through the pressures of persecution and and poverty and tribulation, but they had to deal with blasphemers. The word blasphemy there in Greek means to vilify or to speak evil against God and his people. The blasphemers were not pagan idolaters or Caesar worshipers, but those claiming to be Jews and worshipers of the true and living God, but were not. The church in Smyrna was getting it from all sides. They didn't even have allies among those who were Jews who said they served the true and living God. Those people were blaspheming the name of God and blaspheming his followers as well. These religious leaders who claimed to speak for God but rejected and blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ and persecuted his people, Jesus said, they're of the synagogue of Satan. Guys, I know people have asked me this question a hundred times in the 20 years or so I've been a pastor. But Pastor Dave, if you really believe in God the Father, can't you still get there? Uh, No. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. But they serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, they don't. Because if they did, they'd be serving Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And we see this, these guys who are claiming to be religious, but they're blaspheming the name of Jesus Christ and his followers, and he says they're the synagogue of Satan. You know who I thought of immediately was Saul of Tarsus. Was Saul of Tarsus zealous? What's the answer? He was out thinking he was doing a work for God, and he was attacking Christians. He held the coats while they stoned Stephen. And then Jesus got a hold of him, amen, became the apostle Paul, but he was zealous for a lie. People can be zealous, people can be religious, and people can be lost all at the same time. And what he's saying is, look, these guys claim to be religious, and they're blasphemers, and they're of the synagogue of Satan. They reject Jesus Christ. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees in John 8, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees who rejected him as the Messiah and would not heed the truth. Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. Jesus said that. To these guys with the long robes who everybody else honored, who everybody else thought were religious, the guys who people would come to to speak to God on their behalf, the guys who, you know, ruled in the synagogue, and Jesus said, you guys are of your father, the devil. Boy, you could have heard a pen drop that day, I guess. Nobody talked to these men this way. You know, Jesus is not a respecter of persons or positions. He says, those who claim to walk with God and speak for God, but blaspheme his name and persecute his bride are of the synagogue of Satan. They thought they were right and they were wrong and they were lost. So, remaining faithful in the midst of the storm Point number three, because it's temporary. Look at verse 10. Do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, 
The devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Now, this is probably not what they were looking to hear from Jesus. Amen? We got a letter from the Lord. We got a letter from the Lord. Can you imagine? Everybody go to the church. Everybody's starving. They're ragtag. They're being persecuted. They go to the church and they think, we got a letter from the Lord. This is going to be sweet. And then they get to verse 10. Do not fear any of these things. Oh, that's good. Don't fear these things. Maybe it's over. Which you are about to suffer. What? Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested. Well, we haven't been tested already? And you will have tribulation 10 days. Now, do not fear literally means stop being afraid. These Christians in Smyrna suffered under great persecution and they were afraid. Sometimes we take the emotion out of the Bible. We think, oh, they just must be super saints, right? We're not going to burn incense to Caesar and we're just going to love God and no problem. No, they were afraid. And the Lord tells them, stop being afraid. If you're here this morning, you're afraid. Stop being afraid. Not, you know, pull yourself up. No, trust God. Stop being afraid. Again, sometimes we think Christians who endure persecution are almost superhuman, but the truth is they struggle with fear just like we do. And Jesus says, stop being afraid. Not because the trials were over. In fact, more were coming. Why not be afraid? Because the persecution is going to end. Don't be afraid. This isn't going to go on forever. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Amen? Be encouraged. In the end, they're going to receive an eternal reward. The only way we can walk in boldness and victory is to take our eyes off the temporal and place them on the eternal. Trust in God, not in our circumstances. He says again there, any of those things which you are about to suffer. He didn't calm the storm this time, did he? He came in and could Jesus have calmed the storm? In a minute. He could have said, you know what, persecution over, done. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to care for you. This is over. No more. Instead, he came in and said, okay, guys, the storm's going to keep going, but I'm going to be with you. Be ready. More's coming, but I'm going to be with you. He didn't tell him the suffering was over. He told him more was coming. You might be here this morning. You feel like you've been through enough. I'll be transparent. My seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth time in the hospital, I was like, enough already. I remember my wife and I a couple times when the symptoms were coming back. This means I'm going back to the hospital. Okay. Man, another. Okay. And you know, I will say the last couple times, God gave me a total peace about being in the hospital and I was ready to go. But I'll tell you, in the middle there, I'm sick of the hospital. Who likes the hospital? You do? God bless you. Man. No thanks. But the reality is, you know, the food, the smell, the place, the thing, and you can't, you know, oh, and it's humiliating. You know, you can't get up, you can't do anything, you know, oh, man. Early on, people had to give me showers. That's fun. That's not humiliating, right? You just, you know, people come visit you, you're out, you're, you know, you're, it's just not good. It's not fun. You don't want to be there. But you got to realize when whatever trial you're in, God has you there for a reason. And if you're in the hospital, be salt and light of the hospital. And whatever trial you're going through, be salt and light of that place. And he told them, all right, guys, you've been through a lot. More's coming. Some of you are going to be thrown to prison. Here's what you got to understand about prison. Prison in those days was not to rehabilitate you. We're going to put you in prison and teach you a new trade. That's not what's going to happen. <laughs> We're going to put you in prison, not even to punish you. We're going to put you in prison to await your execution. In those days, that's what prison was really for. We're going to put you there and leave you there till we can put you on trial and then have you executed. Oh, by the way, here's a letter from Jesus. Yeah, you've been through a lot. Well, some of you, guess what? More suffering's coming and some of you are going to go to prison to be tested to see if you'll finally knuckle under and go burn the incense. The poverty hasn't moved you. The pressure hasn't moved you. The tribulations haven't moved you. How about prison and the possibility of being martyred? Maybe that will move you. Wow. 
Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. It says in Matthew 10, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Satan can only do as much as God allows. Do you understand that? He can't go any further. Remember with Job? You can do this, but you can't kill him. If God allows it, we won't fully grasp it maybe until we get to heaven, but God's going to use it for his glory. That you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Again, being thrown into prison with severe persecution. And again, there was the potential loss of life. They were being tested. If this attack is from the devil, why couldn't the Christians just rebuke Satan and stop the attack? I don't even mean to step on anybody's toes. Can I encourage you some? We don't address Satan. Why not? Do you see anybody addressing, do you see the, do you see the apostles addressing Satan? Anywhere. Why not? Because we don't, we, we, we let Jesus take care of him. Amen? Let's talk to the Lord. I hear people rebuking and telling Satan what to do. And you can't tell, Satan's not going to do what you tell him. Do you know that? Right? Oh, okay, thanks, Pastor Dave. I will, I'll leave Santa Cruz now because you... Now, we can pray and ask God and ask the Lord to cause Satan to flee from here, amen? We pray that way. We don't address Satan, we address the Lord. I don't have time to be talking to Satan. Let's talk to Jesus instead, amen? Far better. But too often, people think, well, look, Satan's attacking them. Why didn't just rebuke him and tell him to leave? Because he's not going to until God says so, Amen? Now, in this case, we see here that he tells them in the end, it's going to be for 10 days. Now, that's encouraging. Now, some people have said these 10 days mean 10 ages or 10 emperors or 10 years. You know what I think it means? 10 days. Because that's what it says. Amen? I'm, I'm crazy that way. If the Bible says 10, day, uh, 10 days, okay. Works for me. That's what the Bible says, Right? Now, God had a purpose in their suffering, so he allowed it. Why would God, why would you ever allow your child to suffer? You might say, well, I never would. Well, I remember, I still remember this. My daughter Ashley was a couple months old, and she had to have some shots. And I'm holding her. And daddy is the protector of baby girl, right? Would you come near my daughter? I'm not, right? That's not what's going to happen. But here I am holding her, and she's looking up at Daddy, and Daddy's the one who always protects her. And as Daddy's holding her, some man comes over and sticks a needle in her arm. Thanks, Daddy. What's up with that? (laughs) Do I love my daughter? Why did I let this man stick a needle in her arm? Because I knew it would protect her from an even greater harm. See, God allows us to go through suffering to grow us, to prepare us, to make us more like his son. And he does it because he loves us. It's so important. You know what? When you're in the trial, he's holding you in his arms. Don't forget that. He hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. God uses suffering also to purify us. It says in 1 Peter, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory and the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's through the trials that God is glorified. God uses suffering to make us more like Jesus. The Bible says in Romans 8, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together with him. Also, it makes us witnesses to him because if our faith has been tested, then it shows the world around us that there's something to it. A faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. When you go through a trial, I promise you people are watching. And the way you respond will either bring glory to God's name or harm to it. If we murmur and complain and whine and mope, man, God's not fair. Yeah, I want to serve your, your Savior. I'd love to come to church with you on Sunday. Man, well, that's great. I mean, that's not what's going to happen. But if you're going through a trial and in the midst of it, you say, you know what? It's rough. It's not easy. You don't pretend to be, you know, everything's great no matter what. No, not like that. But what we say is, you know, it's tough. But, you know, here's the good news. God is faithful. And he's going to take care of me. 
And I'm not alone. It's okay. And you know, God will use it for his glory. Smyrna passed the test. Only one of seven churches still in existence today. And again, they've survived through centuries of Roman and Muslim persecution. And praise God for their example to all of us. Amen? Again, he doesn't tell them what will happen at the end of the 10 days. How's the tribulation going to end? He said it'll be over in 10 days. Some of them, I don't know. They might have been fed to lions at the end of 10 days. I don't know. I do know that the church survived, and I do know it still exists today, so God brought them through it. Finally, remaining faithful in the midst of the storm because it's worth it. Our temporary sufferings are nothing, nothing when compared to our eternal reward. Here's what he says. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus, who introduced himself as the first and the last, who was dead and came to life, now he makes a promise that is, that faithfulness would not go unnoticed. You might think, well, nobody sees me being faithful. Nobody, God sees. God knows. His hand's on you. They would have victory over death and would be rewarded in heaven. A man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We get discouraged and depressed and anguished, not always, but most of the time, over stuff that is perishing and doesn't really matter in eternity. Sometimes we're heartbroken because we have a family member that's lost and those things are eternal and those things should take the priority in our prayer life. We need to get past the point where we are overwhelmed by those things that are temporary. Notice he says he gives them the crown of life. The word crown there is a victor's crown. It's a trophy given to a winning athlete. The athletes in the games being played those days got a crown of leaves, but these faithful believers would be given the crown of life. These Christians in Smyrna were pressured, persecuted, blasphemed, hated, mocked, impoverished, again, no doubt seen as losers by the world. But in the eyes of Jesus Christ, I can say this with, a, with full confidence, they were winners. I'm going to give you a crown. Who do you give crowns to? Winners. Fight the good fight. Finish the race with joy. Don't give up. Keep serving. Be faithful and know that the finish line is coming and guys, forever is a long time to be in heaven. Amen? Amen. The time we have here is but a vapor compared to heaven. And we're concerned with this when we ought to be concerned with the, the time that reaches to the horizon. Paul's life was coming to an end. Here's what he said. The time my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only me, but also all who love his appearing. In Romans 8.18, Paul said this, For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not to be com- not, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which be re- will be revealed in us. The current suffering is nothing compared to heaven. What crown or reward are you and I seeking to attain? One that will perish? Money, position, power, education. I'm not saying those things are wrong, but if those are your gods, you're in for a rude awakening. We should be educated. We should work hard. It's okay to have a position. God may use you in that position to minister to people around you. But if that is the prize and the priority of your life, it's time to get your eyes back on Jesus. James, it says, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. I don't want a perishing crown. I want an eternal one. And finally, last verse. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Everyone has physical ears, but not all listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. What has the Holy Spirit said so far? Don't be afraid. Be faithful to me until death, and you will have a heavenly reward. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. I want to take a moment to talk about this because we need to. He who overcomes, overcomes what? The tribulation, the pressure, the persecution. Jesus said, again, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. 
He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, what does that mean? Guys, it's been said, and again, I was a youth pastor for a long time, so I love little things that lot, some people see as trite, but I believe, I believe it sticks. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. What does that mean? We're all born physically, and you're going to die physically, and if you've not been born again, you're going to spend eternity separated from Almighty God in the second death. What is the second death? Revelation 20 says this, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Did we hear that? The second death is eternity separated from Almighty God in a place of torture and torment where it will never be extinguished. The lake of fire. It's a real place. You know, there's something far worse than being a persecuted Christian, not being a Christian. Amen? Being someone who's going to spend eternity separated from God. Again, Matthew 28, I quoted this before and quote it again. And fear not them that can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who was able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, some people here this morning, you're visiting, you're like, I did not come for this. I did not come for this. Guys, hell is real. What kind of loving God would send people to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. People send people to hell. Amen? His desire is that none should perish, no, not one. How many people in this room does God want to see burning in hell? The answer is none. How many people have ever lived did God want to see burning in hell? The answer is none. God creates infinite beings. None of us are finite. We're all going to live forever. It's just a matter of where. Now, here's the reality, and you're not going to like me very much after this. All of us deserve hell. Is that true or not? Why? Because we're sinners. Sin, it's an archery term. It's the distance between where you land and perfection. You shoot on an archery, you know, on a target, and only if you land on the bullseye is it perfect. And the sin distance is the distance between where you land and perfection. Guys, none of us hit the mark, amen? And whether you miss the mark by 10 feet or a million miles, you're a sinner. Now, you've heard me say this before. One sin in heaven, you got earth part two, right? God is perfect. He can't have sin in his presence. We all have admitted we're sinners and deserving of hell. This is bad news. But here's the good news, the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took my sin and your sin and placed it upon himself and took our punishment that you and I might have eternal life. He died as though he lived my life so that I might have eternal life as if I lived his. Do you understand that? He took your place and my place in the punishment so that we can take his place in eternity with him. What a great God we serve. People will say, why would God, why would God deliver us from hell? Because he's a gracious and a loving and a merciful God. What a wonderful God we serve. Guys, that second death is real. And I don't want anyone in this room to spend an eternity there. I don't. I'm thankful I'm not going there, and I know it's not because of anything I've done. But simply, now let me say this, and we're going to pray. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to make sure that you've been forgiven and you're going to heaven. Guys, it's more than asking Jesus in your heart. It's more than taking your life and sprinkling some Jesus on top of it. That's not it. You know what it is? It's laying down your life, repenting from the person you were, turning in the other direction, and surrendering your life completely to Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be born again. Dead to who I was and now alive in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. You might be here and say, well, pastor, I've done too much. God can't forgive me. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. You can't sin so much that God won't forgive you. But he won't force salvation upon you. Salvation is offered as a free gift to everyone. He offers it universally. It must be accepted individually. Mom and dad can't accept it for you. Your wife, your spouse, your friends can't accept it for you. Coming to church doesn't accept it for you. Reading your Bible, praying a prayer, 
You may have been praying your whole life, but you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And I want to say this, no decision is a decision. Well, let me think about it. That's a decision to say no, amen? It's time to move past thinking and it's time to start surrendering, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that in the midst of the storm, you are with us and you are a faithful God. We thank you, Lord, that if we've given our lives to you, we have the promise that this, these trials are, are temporary and that one day we will receive a crown of life and we will live with you forever. Lord, I pray for those who are in the midst of trials right now, for all of us, myself included, Lord, that you would not only comfort us, but you would strengthen us to walk through the storm. Lord, that we wouldn't only seek to be delivered from it, but Lord, to rest in you through it. Lord, I lift up those who are here this morning who have not yet surrendered their lives to you. Lord, we know it's not the convincing words of a man that save anybody. It's a drawing in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray right now for those who do not, do not know you that as your Holy Spirit brings conviction, as your Holy Spirit is drawing them into a place of salvation, that they would respond in obedience and surrender their lives to you. So if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about rededicating your life. I'm talking about those who've never been born again. And you know that you're a sinner. You recognize your need for a savior and you're ready to repent, to turn and surrender your life completely to Jesus Christ. And knowing that because of that, your life will be different from this day forward and that you'll have the promise of heaven. You know what? I'm not asking you to join a church. I'm exhorting you and encouraging you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. 